Welcome to Between the Lines. I'm your host, Craig Cunningham. Today's episode, we have a conversation with Kirk Watson. He's an attorney and Texas state senator representing District 14. He served in a number of political positions in the state of Texas and was the mayor of Austin from 1997 to 2001. In this conversation, my friend Kyle talks with Senator Watson about his Baylor days, politics, cancer, and what he's working on right now. I hope you enjoy. Senator Kirk Watson, thanks for having us. I'm pleased to be uh, getting to do this. This is fun. This is fun for us. And we have started this uh, Baylor Line podcast in order to get to know uh, some of the funnest and most interesting good uh baylor alumni but we didn't have anybody for this month so you called me so huh? we called yeah, you yeah instead. okay yeah. Well, all right i get it that works out um you are a democrat in texas yeah but you're originally from oklahoma well that was mother and daddy's mistake that wasn't my mistake. okay so one of those things yeah. if uh wasn't born in Texas, but got here as quick as you could. Yeah, uh, I was born in Oklahoma City. Uh, my parents uh, were both from Oklahoma. I was born in Oklahoma City, uh, as was my brother, also a Baylor grad, two years after me. Uh, our father was a little bit of a late bloomer. Okay. And what had happened was he had graduated from high school with no intention of going to college, uh, went into the Air Force, came out of the Air Force, and went to work. Uh, as an electrical technician. And then a few years later, when he was 26, he met my mother. They had a very brief uh, courtship and married. And before he knew it, he had two kids. And he looked up one day and said, man, this is not going to work. So he went to night school and got an engineering degree. Became He was the first in our family to get a degree, set the Watson family off on the course that we're on. Um, But he got his once he had his degree, which took him several years, as you might guess, he was working for the Federal Aviation Administration, and their okay. regional headquarters was outside or is outside Fort Worth. So once he had that degree, they basically promoted him, and they wanted him to move near Fort Worth. So I went to elementary school, kindergarten and first and second grade in Oklahoma, and then when we moved to uh, the Fort Worth area, Saginaw. I went to Saginaw Elementary, started third grade there. My brother Kyle started first grade there, and that's where we lived uh, then forward growing up. Wow. And so your your father working for the government in some capacity doing uh, yeah, he, aviation he, stuff. Yeah, well, he was an engineer that worked for the Federal Aviation Administration, okay. and by, t- by the time he retired, uh, he was the appointed regional administrator of the Southwest region of the FAA. Oh, wow. My mother was a registered nurse, uh, had gone to nursing school in Oklahoma City. And then um, when we moved to Fort Worth, the Fort Worth area, um, uh, she uh, was a, worked in a children's hospital most of my life. Wow. Yeah. And both your parents uh, pursuing higher education degrees. I mean, pretty cool story for your dad to have gone to night school. Yeah, to- yeah. Take those steps. Well, you know, it, it was such that uh, for uh, for my brother and me, the fact that we were going to go to college was a, as much a part of our DNA yeah. as, as anything else because of what he had done, uh, the way he had had to go about doing it. Um, and so it, it, was, it was never lost on us, the opportunity that was kind of laid at our feet. Right, um, And we always knew we were going to go to, to college, uh, or that was always the intent. And there was always this expectation that if you're going to do it, you, you're going to do it the right way. You're going to work at it hard uh, because it was it was not something to be taken for granted. Right. You know, I, I now refer to it kind of as the Effie effect. And mm-hmm. Effie is my 10-month-old granddaughter. I have one grandchild. Oh, cool. And I can't imagine how different daddy's life would have been mm-hmm had he not pursued that college degree, working full-time, raising a family, and going to night school. I can't imagine how different his life would be. But when I stop and think about how different his great-granddaughter's mm-hmm. life, a, a child he never knew. He passed in 97. But her life will be different because of him pursuing higher education the way he did because certainly it made a difference in my life and then in my children's life. And so I call it the Effie effect. You know, maybe somebody you don't ever even know, 
you never had the chance to meet, but because of sacrifices he made, it makes a difference in her life. Wow. What a cool legacy. And Yeah. Uh, so it's in your DNA and in your siblings' DNA to, all right, after high school, we're, we're looking oh, we for always, college. Yeah, yeah well, so, so part of what happened to us was that uh, I remember, uh, and, and I don't know why I remember this other than I didn't know what it meant. Um, I remember being in the seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And uh, at Wayside Middle School in Saginaw, Texas, and we um, uh, we had to fill out some form, and the form was had where we might go to college. And I don't remember what the form was about. My memory was it was a student council thing that that we were doing, and I had been raised by these Okies, right? So um, you know they 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 OU was a big <clears throat> big part of our our Saturdays and. Um, so I'd put OU down on that. And I remember my mother telling me also to put down Baylor. Hmm. Well, I, I can remember the time saying, what is Baylor? I, I, I didn't know what Baylor was. Interestingly enough, I've always thought she did some voodoo on all of that because <laughs> when, um, when I was at the, after my freshman year in high school, so my freshman year in high school, uh, the, um, we didn't have a debate team. But my freshman year in high school, we had a new, brand new drama and speech teacher. Now, she focused more on drama. Uh, that, that was her love. That was her passion. But she also taught speech. And I remember her picking, I and mean, I think the way you tried out for the debate team was you were the, you were the most talkative person in class. You were the loud <laughs> mouth. You were the, kind of the pain in the neck because she picked a group of us. And I was part of that group that were now on the debate team. Well, we... We went to debate tournaments. We weren't very good. And, and, but that summer, that summer, I found myself in Waco on the Baylor campus going to the Baylor debate camp. Wow. And my brother was two years younger than me. So my parents, they spent the week that I was in debate camp in Waco in Salado, just as kind of a little semi vacation uh, and being near there. What happened was I started going to Baylor debate camps every summer. And then Kyle, my brother, he, he started Baylor debate camps even before he was at Baylor. He, between his eighth grade and his freshman year in high school, he was at a Baylor debate camp. So our mother, doing the voodoo that she did, <laughs> um, she had us on campus where we were already getting to live in Martin and Penland yes. and uh, being a part of the campus and, and learning the campus. And there's bears on campus. Oh, yeah. When you're in junior high and high school, yeah, yeah. there's nothing cooler than... Well, Live bears there that's exactly, on campus. That's exactly right. But we so by the time I had uh, started looking at where I wanted to go to college, I mean, I felt like I I knew Baylor like the back of my hand, that's and great. and um, wanted to debate. And so uh, there was always and Baylor was exceptional in that regard. But uh, I think she had me uh, appropriately brainwashed very early oh, that that funny. Baylor was where I was going to go. That's great. Was uh, was there also some voodoo and maybe some subliminal messages of, hey, if you're good at debate, you should consider law practice? Well, that was just a very, that was no voodoo to that. That was pretty straightforward. I stayed okay. in trouble all the time talking. <laughs> and, um, and so I remember very vividly my old man saying to me, by about the fourth grade, son, we have got to figure out a way for you to make a living with that mouth. Otherwise, <laughs> you're going to just stay in trouble. Um, and uh, and I did want to go to law school. You know, by, by the middle of high school, I became a very focused. In fact, I would argue I, was, I became too focused mm. on wanting to go to law school and be in the courtroom and trying mm. cases. Um, and that was another good thing about uh, the, the, the Baylor track that I apparently was on at a very young age. Um, we taught, we didn't, there were no lawyers in our family, um, but daddy knew a few lawyers and, and we would talk to some of these lawyers and he would talk to them and every, you know, I, I, I wasn't in on all those conversations. My guess is he would say, what do you do with a kid that all he does is talk and maybe <laughs> is the only talent the child has, uh, is talking. And, but all of them told him that if you wanted, if, if, if you wanted to go to a law school that would train you to be a first-class lawyer trying cases in a courtroom, well, Baylor Law School was the place to go. Wow. So one of the things that, that, that happened with that is a lot of those Baylor debaters mm-hmm. that I knew, 
they were already at Baylor and I was in high school and they were they were teaching at the Baylor debate camp and they were uh, squad leaders, guys that are friends of mine today that I met when I was in high school. And, they're... and, and, and they were in law school. Wow. In fact, uh, I, when I got to Baylor as an undergrad, uh, I would go over and play roles in the mock trials that they had. I would be one of the witnesses in the mock trials. So, so the Baylor track for me made a heck of a lot of sense right. in part because not just debate, and I didn't end up uh, debating very long there uh, for a variety of reasons, but it's what helped me to fall in love with the place and then uh, get on track to go to law school. What a cool story. Well, you, it, it, because it, nowadays it, most people come into Baylor and might change their major 15 times in the first two years, um, but you you had a pretty good no in fact in fact if i if I had anything to say about it looking back now all these years later, I would say I was too directed um, okay and and here's what here's why I would say that so I graduated from high school in nineteen seventy six and then I walked off Baylor's campus in nineteen eighty one so five years later, I had my law degree wow and um and that was because Baylor had what I think is a great program that I guess if your GPA and your LSAT was high enough, they would take you in early. So they called it the three and three program back then. Well, that was a great program for somebody like me because the cost was significantly diminished if I could get into law school quicker and get out. And I I really hope Baylor will will look back at that. I mentioned that the other day uh, or a couple of weeks ago when I was up on campus uh, talking to a I was on a panel for a a retreat that they were having up there. Um, And and one of the things I pointed out was that's a good way to save money for somebody that wants to go in. You're not there as long. And then I went to uh, one summer between my freshman and sophomore year. I went home and went to Tarrant County, what was then Tarrant County Junior College, is now Tarrant County College to pick up some extra hours. But but the point being that um, doing it that fast Mm. was very helpful to me monetary-wise and otherwise, and I got the degree that I wanted to get, and it's worked out great. But I missed out on some things doing it that way. I missed out on taking that that extra course that that maybe we, we kind of would discourage because of the cost of it. But I, I look back on it, and I wish I'd have taken um, uh, a, a couple of other religion courses with Dr. Pitts, for example. Mm. Um, uh, I took a, uh, I fell in love with a philosophy course, uh, a logic course that Dr. Cooper taught and, um, uh, had no idea what I was taking. I just, you know, you signed up for the course and you needed to take the course. And then out of that, I took a course that we had a visiting professor from the university of Edinburgh. And I took a, a course on David Hume, uh, the oh, philosopher cool. David Hume. It was tremendous. Um, you know, looking back on it, I wish I'd have had, I'd have taken more time. You know, have a, have a course from Vardaman, who who recently yes. passed. Yes. You know, in in history, do do more of that that I just didn't have the time for. So while I was pretty directed, and that that works that worked out okay. Um, looking back on it now, it'd been fun to have taken a couple of other things from some some of those professors that meant a lot to me. Yeah, and to have. A liberal arts, yeah, uh, background. Yeah, I, I often wish, man, I'd like to go back and get a couple more just undergrad. Well, <laughs> undergrad. exactly. Sure, sure. I mean, there's yeah. there's there there are things that um, you're you know, at the, and particularly, it, I'd like to do it now, but particularly at that age when you thought you you know, heck, I I was a high school debater, man. I knew everything there was to know, right? <laughs> I, so so all of a sudden, you know, you're taking a history course where. You've got this professor who is, you know, world class, having you read things that you would have never picked up off a shelf to read right. and open you up to, to things. Same thing with Pitts, uh, Dr. Pitts, who uh, I ran into on campus recently. Um, it's been it's been a little while. That's probably about a year and a half. Um, and, of course, he has no idea who I am, doesn't remember me. But I, I went up to him and thanked him mm-hmm. because uh, he exposed me to thinking that I hadn't been exposed to before. And and I wish I'd have done a little bit more of that. That's 
That's good stuff. What what were some of the uh so Dr. Pitts in the religion department. Yeah. I hear this often from undergrad students and from my own experience at Baylor. You walk into that intro to scriptures class or mm-hmm. intro to Christian yeah, history. This was class. an old this was an old testament course that he was teaching. Okay. And and all of a sudden you're challenged to think critically about uh-huh. a faith that maybe has been part of the family or maybe been part of you know, just in your back pocket. Now you got to take it out and examine it. Well, you know, I said it's, it's interesting the, the way you just phrase that. Um, you know, we're in a debate that I think is sometimes an unnecessary debate uh, in higher education generally. I serve on the and have since I came in the Senate, uh, the Texas Senate. I serve on the Senate Higher Education Committee, and again, you can tell from a little bit of the background here why. I mean, I'm very passionate about it and care deeply about it. But there's this debate going on right now about free speech on college campuses. And, um, you know, I pointed out the other day that it's interesting because in the 60s, it was what you would call the liberals claiming they weren't able to speak freely on college campuses. And now, at this point in time, it's the conservatives that are saying they're not allowed to speak freely on college campuses which tells me it's more of a political issue in some instances. Right, right. And we ought to be able to solve political issues. But part of what I would say to a private school that doesn't have the same requirements on it as does a public institution, but because it requires a state actor to, to violate the First Amendment, that kind of thing, without getting all that detail. But, but the point being, the point being that it's on that college campus that the discussion and debate and open thought, yes. freedom to hear and think of other things, in my case, strengthened my faith. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, as you just pointed out, you you come in with a set of preconceived ideas, having been raised uh, pretty religiously and going to a, a campus that, like I say, my mama did the voodoo because she wanted me at that faith-based institution, and you end up there, it was there that hearing other ideas, other thoughts, and being in a position to raise questions about their thinking and about my thinking yes. actually strengthens one's faith. So uh, that was, I think, one of the values of being there. That's excellent. For the... Because the chaplaincy office or the Department of Spiritual Life can have a distinctively intentional Christian uh, way of caring for students on campus. And then in the religion classes, to let those questions come up, to let those questions kind of even remain unanswered and not say, all right, you've got to believe this way. But here's the historical questions that have been asked. Well, I have a very vivid memory of. Dr. Pitt. So so my roommate at the time was taking the same Old Testament course as me. And uh but we had it at different times. We, we had it different days and I think mine was on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, his was on Tuesday and Thursday. And one of the things that, that Dr. Pitts did is he had you had to learn all these maps. Oh. Yeah, we had we had to you had to you had to learn all these maps. Israel and Beersheba. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to remember. I I could not pass the test today. (laughs) But what we did is my roommate and I had a very healthy competition um, about who was going to make the higher grade um, in in Dr. Pitts' course. And he graded me down on one of my maps, um, and I was very upset. I mean, I think I made, if I'm honest about it, it it was still an A, but it was not. I needed I needed those extra points, right? Because I was in a competition, and so I went to his office. The point of the story is not so much that he did not give me the extra points I wanted, <laughs> but it is that while I was there, I asked him a question that had nothing to do with the map, mm-hmm. and he sat there with me for at least thirty minutes, wow. where we talked about something that I, was a question I had, not about the map, but about what we were studying at the time. There was just this openness about him that helped me think. Hmm. Um, what a what, you know, talk, you mentioned the word legacy earlier. What a great legacy for a guy. Now I can't even remember what the conversation was really about. Sure. But what a great legacy for a professor that here I am all these years later that I feel moved by it. 
Right. May there be more of those. Yeah. And, no and, there, and there are still. Well, there are. And, and, and there, were, and there yeah. were others on campus, right? Yeah. That's good. Well, from Oklahoma, you end up being the mayor of the coolest city in Texas. Next to Waco. I mean, <laughs> Waco, Waco's, uh, Waco's got its own coolness. Um, but uh, how did you guys land in Austin? And what do you love about Austin? And what pulled you into uh, wanting to serve? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things. That's, that's a lot. Um, so first of all, when I graduated from law school, um, we thought at that time, so, so the, the story is that um, Liz graduated from, from the same high school I did. I mean, she went to Saginaw Elementary, Wayside, and Boswell High School too. And she, but she was a year ahead of me. Um, and as I point out frequently, it was not because I had been held back. Uh, <laughs> she was just a year ahead of me. And she went to uh, tech. She, she moved to, from where we were living and grew up uh, out to Lubbock. A year later, I graduated from high school, went down to Waco to go to Baylor, and we maintained uh, a long-distance romance. So not texting. You're not. Yeah, no. You're not. Uh, you're not eye, eye chatting each other with. That my, we letters. Southwestern. Well, there are a lot of letters, but Southwestern Bell Telephone had big bills. We okay. we probably financed a merger or two <laughs> along the way, um, and then we burned up the road. You know, we uh, between Waco and Lubbock, and wow. so so I had started law school early, as I said, and and she finished up, she finished up uh, undergrad, and she moved to uh, Waco. She was a TV reporter and anchor on uh, Channel Six KCEN, and I was in law school. I'd started my second quarter of law school when we got married in that in June of '79, and. Uh, when I finished law school, we thought we were going to go back up to North Texas, uh, which is where the families were. Probably Dallas, uh, frankly, because it paid more. They, they, Dallas law firms were paying more money than the Fort, Fort Worth, Worth law firm. <laughs> and but but we were. I was doing a lot of interviewing, and all pretty much exclusively in North Texas. But we decided, you know, let's buy ourselves another year to see how this really, you know, what where we want to be. So I moved, I got a job with uh, a, a Baylor guy, uh, Sam Johnson, who was a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Okay. And, uh, and, and his family has a lot of Baylor connections. But um, we were going to move here for one year. Liz had a job, again, working as a reporter and anchor. And um, I was going to be here for, we were going to be here for a year and probably go to Dallas. And we got here, and it wasn't three months where we were looking around saying, oh, my goodness, I wonder if we can make a living in Austin. And that was in 1981. So almost 40 years later, um, here we've been. Um, and it's, it, I, and I think it just was a gift. It just was a gift. What is it about the city that pulled you guys in? Well, a part of it was it was just the most beautiful place we had seen. And, and what ha- part of what also played out with that was um, we immediately fell in love with, you know, kind of the culture, kind yeah. of the 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 music. Yes. Um, it was not uncommon at all. So Liz anchored the weekend. So I remember vividly what would happen is on a Saturday, about 9.30, I'd find a payphone and I would call her because this was, you know, there were no cell phones. But I'd find a payphone and I'd call her and tell her what, what club I was going to be listening to music in. She'd read the 10 o'clock news, finish at 10.30, and then by 10.45, maybe 11 o'clock, would meet me someplace and we'd listen to music. Down on Sixth Street, Sixth Street Rebels. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, Rebels never been a word used again, uh, <laughs> for me, but uh, but but that that was a big part of it. Wow. And and um, I clerked for the judge, and then fell into a bird's nest on the ground with a wonderful law firm that just nurtured me, and um, uh, and that's how we ended up in Austin. You you ask about how I ended up in in politics and, and public policy. And the truth of the matter is that uh, that was always something I was interested in. Uh, I cared about it, got involved in other people's campaigns. I you know, I ran for, uh, while I was working for the judge, but had decided we were going to try to stay in Austin. Um, I, at that point in time, I ran for the Young Lawyer Board here and uh, within a short time was on the Texas Young Lawyer Board and did those kinds of things. I worked in different people's political campaigns. Um, 
including uh, another Baylor person, Governor Ann Richards. Yes. And um, she uh, appointed me the chair of a state agency, the state agency at that time that was involved in uh, air quality, an environmental agency. And one of my jobs was to work with the chair of the Water Commission to merge those agencies into what we now know as the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. Um, and I, like I say, I, I was always involved in one way or another, but it really wasn't until I got very, very sick. And um, I had tried a case down in Houston for several months and uh, at the end of 91. And in the first part of 92, I was diagnosed with um, what ended up being uh, metastatic testicular cancer. And so had three surgeries and chemotherapy, mm. uh, made the decision that I was going to do something different. Didn't really know what that, well, actually at that point I didn't. At that point I just went back to work where it looked like I was going to live. It was in 95 that they, on a routine CAT scan, they found another tumor in my abdomen um, and went in and what I say, they field dressed me. They went in and uh, <laughs> cut me from stem to stern and stripped uh, lymph nodes in my abdomen. That was when I said, okay, January of 97, I'm going to do something different. Um, don't know what it is, but I'm going to be I'm maybe working halftime, may still be trying lawsuits. I had a very active trial practice. Um, and what happened was people started saying to me, well, what about running for mayor? Mm-hmm. The mayor's not running for re-election. You love public policy. You like politics. Um, you're looking to do something different. Why not run for mayor? And my running joke was, well, that would make me the only guy in the world that thinks being mayor of Austin's better than chemotherapy. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, but my theory was, if I if I do it and hate it, you know, it's not going to be chemotherapy. It won't be that bad. We, we'll get through that, and then I'll look to do something else. I ran. Uh, there were eight of us that ran. Uh, I led. I had like forty, something over forty eight percent on election day. The guy that came in second had slightly less than 40%, and he dropped out on Monday morning, so I became the mayor-elect, and I loved it. And I loved being in public office and, and enjoyed that, that experience. Uh, was reelected, uh, ran for another office in 2002 uh, that I wasn't successful, and then um, this opportunity to be in the Senate uh, looked like it might come up, uh, and I was elected to this in 2006 and been doing that since. Wow. What a neat story because uh, after having been sick, after some surgeries, that kind of watershed moment drove you, drives you into... Well, here's what it did. It didn't drive me. It didn't drive me. It gave me freedom. Mm. Getting sick and surviving. One of the gifts of cancer mm. was it gave me freedom that I didn't have before. And part of that was the freedom to do things that I thought maybe I would do that I'd even kind of talked about or whispered about from time to time, but never did. And, um, you know, part of part of that gift is that you live your life in increments of time. Mm-hmm. You focus on the, you have a real short-term focus. In my view, you ought to have, everybody ought to, you ought to have a short-term focus, but with a long-term vision of the future. Focus on what you got right now. Mm-hmm. Because you don't, you know, the best laid plans, if you had asked me at 32 years old before I got sick, Watson, where are you going to be in 20 years? If I'd have been honest with you, I'd have told you where I thought I was going to be within about a week. I mean, I, I, I really thought I had the world by the tail, only to find out that I might not live to be 35. Wow. Um, well, now I try to live my life with a short-term focus, but with what I call a long-term vision. And that means focus on what you got right there in front of you, but do it so that if things work out where you get a long, happy life or a long, happy career, that vision can be fulfilled. So it was more, it was not a direction. Mm-hmm. It was more of a freedom, uh, more of a focusing attention on what the possibilities were right then and grabbing those. With the freedom uh, to with the freedom realizing that, okay, 10 years from now is not guaranteed, but I can do something now, you jump into yeah. Texas mayor and now senator. What a, that's a 
I think your story sounds unique to me. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm not sure it may, may be, but um, I can see where it's not unique because I think a lot of people figure out that, that they have an opportunity and they ought to they ought to grab it. Um, you know, my theory has always been that that um, you know, what's it going to do? Give me cancer? Right. You know, let's <laughs> let, let's let's try it. Let's take it on. And um, but 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 there there are some gifts that come out of being that sick. And worried about whether or not you're gonna you're gonna make it. You mentioned earlier that uh, Ann Richards tapped you to be part of the the Texas Air Control Board, and then that and then it seems like much of your political career you've been working with Air and with the Texas Water Commission and Natural Resources. In some ways, it's like you're a little bit of a Captain Planet with a suit on. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that either, but it sounds yeah, fun. I'd look like, with the weight I am right now, I'd look like a piece of sausage if you put me in something like that. <laughs> but, um, but environmental uh, conservation has been a, a theme throughout the past couple of decades. Um, tell us more about that and, and uh, specifically with uh, securing water and... Yeah, so you're t- kind of one stuff. of the things you mentioned is the... When I was mayor, one of the things I'm most proud of is that um, we we created we I think assured Austin's water uh, capacity for the at least the next 50 years, and actually it's it's more likely for the next uh, 100 years by by doing some water purchases, but also by some land purchases that would protect water quality. We did, we did that uh, within my first year of being mayor. And um, we built into the contract with the Lower Colorado River Authority on those water purchases, we built in a, a, a monetary, if you will, conservation program that has actually worked beautifully. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I think a big part of that uh, is just that I truly believe that we ought to be leaving something better uh, for uh, my kids and that and that grandbaby I talked about, mm-hmm. um, you know. And and there's a and and, and I've I've been asked this question before, and I, and I don't I can't really put my finger on why it is that I care so much about uh, just the environmental protection, other than I feel like we have a duty to do that. But I've all I must admit I've brought it back to uh, one aspect, which is the the my family's favorite hymn mm. is "How Great Thou Art." When I survey, yes, there you go. You you know the song. You know when I uh, the, through the woods and forest glades I wander. You know mm. the talk about the the hearing the brook, uh, feeling the breeze in the trees. Now, while that's not scriptural. The song "How Great Thou Art" in the Watson family comes from awfully close, yeah, yeah. and um, and and um, there's just something there's something more than a personal obligation. I think we've been given great assets. Mm-hmm. Um, God has supplied us with uh, a wonderful earth mm-hmm. and an environment that is worthy of protecting. And and a lot of what drives me in public policy is rooted to some great degree in my view of my faith. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day here in Austin, Texas, or in Waco, we, we live on earth, we live on soil, and we need water. We can't just drink Cokes. And and we don't live on a bunch of sidewalks. We, well, you we can't. Get, here's the thing: you can't make cokes without, without water. water, right? Yeah. So, in fact, Coca Cola, uh, Coca Cola Company is very involved in clean water and mm-hmm. water conservation more than most people know, because their whole industry is based upon the preservation of water and water quality. This doesn't feel like a, quote, political conversation. And yet we are talking about water, land, and the humans that need to consume these things and need to have a place to live and something to drink, like water to drink. Um, it seems like you're able to kind of get to the heart of politics of what, what is a polis? What is a, 
um, a city and a society living together. Well, we got to be able to drink and we got to be able to drive places and we got to be able to that kind of stuff. Well, one of the th- great things I like about cities is that we are living this close together. Mm. You know, with Texas's growth, uh, you know, it's it sure it's Austin, it's Waco, it's Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, you know, San Antonio. It, it's different cities, but we are the, you know, there's the state of Texas is, is the sum of its city and regional component parts. And we're all living pretty close together. Yeah. Um, you know, over 80% of the population lives in that triangle of Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, over to San Antonio, and then back up. That's a lot of folks. Uh, you know, we're talking about 28 million people. So part of it is how do we live that close together? How do, how do we make sure that we preserve uh, what it is that has attracted us to stay here or come here? Um, and so for our kids and, and, and those that come after us, and I, I think that that is a real obligation. Okay, a few more minutes. Um, we can we can edit out this pause. <laughs> I wanna I wanna end well and end on something that you're interested in. Is there something from Baylor for your work that you are excited about, or something that uh, something that? Uh, Maybe you learned from Baylor well, that's been part of your career that we've yet to kind of. Well, tell, tell me what you wanted to talk about. We, we, I, I, I want to know what you guys are interested in. Um, you mentioned this earlier, and you mentioned the hymn. In what ways? And you don't have to be super evangelical about it or uh, preachy about it. But in what are, what are the ways that your faith has impacted the ways that you want to go about public policy and the people that you serve and. In, uh, in the counties that you represent as senator? Well, let me talk about faith this way and start off by saying that I'm, I'm, I'm bothered by in this day and age that we we're, we're too often seeing faith used as kind of a de facto two-party system. Right. Um, I wasn't raised that way at all. Um, I, I, I didn't see, you know, the truth of the matter is, I was raised by parents that that asked us to question, mm. uh, that 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 encouraged us to question because they thought that would strengthen our faith. Uh, they were pretty good about telling us what they thought, but but it was never considered that if you didn't agree with with them or us a hundred percent, somehow that puts you on the other side of a line. Um, instead, we. we Part of our faith was to try to find commonality, mm-hmm. and and find because because ultimately we're all uh, God's creation and we're all uh, people, and so you try to find that commonality. Um, and there seems to me that as we as we try to divide ourselves up based upon faith, um, you know, I was raised very evangelical, but. That word has now taken on a political meaning, and 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 I don't like that. Right. Uh, I don't like the idea that that I mean that it means something specific to me about my faith and and where I want to go with my faith, as opposed to it somehow labeling me from a political perspective. Right. Right. So so that bothers me as well. But but here's the thing: I remember very distinctly going being a child, a little kid. Going with my mother and the the women that she was friends with from the church, and and we would go to different places. Particularly, I remember nursing homes and uh, uh, hospitals to uh, help. I mean, of course, I wasn't helping, but the, 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 these 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 mothers were. And they would sit and they would read the Bible to to the people. I remember that before I was in elementary school. And and the reason I bring that up is because that I know that that directs me even today in what it is I want to do in public life. Mm -hmm. And I worry that our public discourse and our politics have become uh, 
removed from that mm -hmm. in some great degree. And here's another part of that. My mother and those women that I remember going with as a kid to do that, that it never would have occurred to them to crow about what they were doing. There was a humility to it mm -hmm. that I worry we're losing when we describe faith and religion in our politics today. If it's if it, if it is if people are so set on 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 bragging about that or demeaning others or uh, creating divisions based upon that, right? It lacks the humility that I think the Bible and Scripture encourages us to have in the expressions of our faith. Well said. You can't just say, hey, I'm a Christian and I'm running for office and everybody know what that means, or I'm an evangelist, or whatever the, right. the, the line is, whatever the But we're using it, we're is. using it, we're using it too much, I think, as a yeah. political uh, label. And of course, um, you know, we do... Politics may be the world's worst when it comes to labels. Um, you know, Democrat, Republican, uh, Tea Party, uh, rhinos, you know, all those different <laughs> labels, all those different labels get put on folks. But one of the things that I think is, is really important about that is labels get used. We all get used. Oh, you went to Baylor. Well, I, okay. Oh, you went to A&M. Oh, you went to UT. We use labels. Right. And we use labels to shorthand what we think those people know or think. And we sometimes then get away from the responsibility of ever hearing them again. Right. Well, I worry that's happening too much in our politics. And um, just because you put a label on somebody doesn't mean you know everything about them. And one of the things I think we're losing is I might agree. They might agree with me. Mm. They might agree with me. 80% of the time, but because they put the label on, they're not willing to try to find out if they do. And it almost limits conversation. Well, there's no question it limits conversation. There's no, there's no question. Um, one thing that you are passionate about is, uh, is higher education from your own story and in your own family. Uh, it's expensive to go to school. Yeah. Um, in layman's terms, not even talking about specific, uh, any specific bills or po potential policy. What do you think are some of the best ways to help students afford school um, in the coming decades? Well, there are going to be a couple of things. First of all, and, and, and by the way, this is something we have to do. Yeah. Uh, we have to figure out a way to make it easier. And, and I'll tell you, the state of Texas has a program through the Higher Education Coordinating Board that is a when I say it's a program, it's a set of goals um, to have a certain percentage of our population between the age of 25 and 60% between the age of 25 and 34 by 2030 having some sort of uh, degree or certificate. And in that, that year, having a, a specific number of people be able to obtain that. And you mentioned cost as part of that uh, by 2030, having only 60% uh, having having loans be only 60% of a first-year salary. So there, mm -hmm. there are specific goals that yes. we're working on in the state of Texas. The question becomes, can you achieve those uh, without doing some things that are very important? One is we need to make it a whole lot easier to transfer hours mm -hmm. from a community college to a four-year college. Uh, a few years ago, I was very pleased to see that Baylor... Uh, was entering into specific contracts with community colleges mm -hmm. where if a, if, if a student got out of that community college with an associate's degree, they were admitted to Baylor. What they did is they had an affiliation agreement uh, that, that allows those courses that you're taking at that community college that you know they're going to transfer toward a degree. Right. Well, that's a very important thing. You know, Remember earlier I was telling you that uh, I went home in the summer and picked up a bunch of hours one summer. I think colleges ought to encourage that as well. Now, granted, that plays into tuition, and you'd rather have that tuition come into the school sure. than going someplace else. But the truth of the matter is, it might work better 
for somebody like a Kirk Watson to go back home, have a job, mm-hmm. be picking up hours, and then come back for that sophomore year um, or mm-hmm. junior year or whatever. So I, I think we have to do a, a much better job with, the, with what we call transferability of those hours. And I think private schools ought to play a role in that as well. And like I say, Baylor is doing some of that, but it ought to, it ought to participate in what we're attempting, and, and it is, um, through the Independent Colleges and Universities of Texas uh, organization. The other thing is, I think it's incumbent upon the state of Texas to provide more funding mm-hmm. to help students. If you look at the, the number one funding source for uh, scholarships, if you will, in public schools, it's called the Texas Grants Program. And we have degraded it, in my view, over year after year, biennium after biennium, so that what we've done is we've made it where uh, less money is actually going to those students because we're not willing to fund it. So you have um, about half, if you look back to the year 2000, uh, we have about uh, half the number of students that are getting 100% of their tuition covered uh, the way they were back then that need it. That, mm-hmm. the, 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 it's a needs-based deal. If you look at private schools, Baylor uh, Baylor's the single largest recipient of what we refer to as TEGs, tuition equalization grants. Um, and it's it, the second place is, is not quite... Uh, Baylor's not double uh, that comes in second, but it's it's double the, the school that comes in third and comes in fourth in terms of receipt of TEG. So Baylor is a major recipient of TEGs. But if you look at what the state of Texas has done in terms of putting money into TEGs, mm-hmm. I could walk you through biennia biennia, and in the biennium that we're sitting in right now, we're only a couple of million dollars more than what was put in in 2002. Mm. So we're, the state is not doing what it ought to do to educate its population. So those are two big things I would say. One is we need to make it easier to go to a cheaper school for a while and, and, then, transfer. and then transfer. And the second is the state needs to be putting money into helping these students that don't have uh, the wherewithal. Good stuff. Well, I want to wrap up. Okay. I'm so thankful for your time. I want to wrap up with a, a little game called the Bear Den. Oh. All right? You got to answer seven questions. Uh-oh. Just off the off the cuff. You're you're in the Bear Den. I'm the bear. Well, I feel like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so it's a game of words. You just got to you just got to give your quick answer okay. right off the cuff. <laughs> seven questions. You're in the hot seat. All right, number 1, what's your favorite thing about Texas? Uh, the beauty of it. Hmm. Number two, how do you how do you do your part to keep Austin weird? Um, you know, uh, <laughs> you're smiling all <laughs> um, the the way I keep it weird is by trying to create the opportunity for people to have weird ideas and not be prejudged. Oh, that's good. Number three, what's the most trouble you ever got in at Baylor? Um, the most trouble would have been before I was at Baylor, but it was on Baylor's campus when I was at one of those summer debate camps and all over campus, I guess they still have those benches. And back then the slats in those benches, you could pull them out. Oh, you could pull them out. And we were headed over to eat at Denny's one night. <laughs> and while we were headed over to the eat at that Denny's, there was one of those benches, right? So it's right there, right on that, cam- right there, just as you start to get off campus. Right, yeah. There's now a coffee shop uh, yeah, over there. Common Grounds, right. right. Yeah. So where that, so it was right, there was a bench right over there. <laughs> and I decided for some reason I needed to pull those slats out, which caused both the, those concrete ends to fall over. And there was a Baylor cop sitting right there on the, I mean, he would, he couldn't have been 30 feet away from me. Um, so I got in a little trouble with that, but that's the worst I did. Okay. Well, that's not too that Maybe the worst I'll admit to. Okay. That's, that's fair. Um, number four, if you were not a lawyer and you were not in uh, politics, if you were in a totally different life, what would you do? Just something totally different. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I actually have thought about that a little bit. If I if I weren't doing what I'm doing right now, um, nursing would be one of the things I would most enjoy doing. Cool. Uh, 
Mountains or beaches and waves. mountains, no mountains. question. Amen. First of all, play, playing in the in the mud just not that much fun to me. <laughs> um, number six, what's your favorite thing about your wife, Liz? Um, right now, it is watching her be a grandmother. Mm. I'm having the best time watching her react with that grandbaby. Oh, that's it's been fun. That's fun. Last question: What's the best or the most memorable live concert you've ever been to? Oh, um, that, that's a great one. So in 2000, that's wonderful. In 2000, uh, I was mayor and we were going into the new millennium, right? Mm-hmm. So Y2K, Y2K, everybody, out. everybody was, everybody was out of their minds, but, uh, <laughs> uh but talk about keeping Austin weird. Yeah. I, I, I decided I wasn't going to worry about it. And instead we threw a party downtown. We had 260,000 people downtown. And the way we did this is all night long, we had different music acts going back and forth. And um, and so the next to last one, the backdrop was the river, was the, was was now Lady Bird Lake. And then the last one, and that was Robert Earl Keene. And then the last one, the backdrop was the Capitol, and Lyle Lovett was playing. Whoa. Now, we, when he finished, we ended up at the, at the intersection of 6th and Congress, and we counted down the new year. But, but the, the, the memorable moment of that night was I went up on stage, and one of my favorite Lyle Lovett songs is If I Had a Boat. Um, and he was singing If I Had a Boat to up, so from the Capitol toward uh, Lady Bird Lake to all of those people out on Congress Avenue. And, I mean, it was packed. And when I walked up on stage, he was singing that song, which, again, is one of my favorites. But you could hear the crowd singing that song. Mm-hmm. It gives me chills thinking about it right now. It was, it was, it was, I've been to some great concerts over the years, but that was one of the most memorable moments. It was my town. It was a turning point, And it was music. And all those people just were so happy. Oh, so that was a great night. That's good. We're going to have to play that as the outro music. Ah, there you go. I like that. Man, that's good. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's uh, my pleasure. This is fun. Good stuff. Well, thanks for what you all do with the Battle Line. Absolutely. Rock and roll, sick and bears, all that good stuff. Yeah, you got it. All right. Take care. And if I had a boat, I'd go out on the ocean. That was Senator Kirk Watson. Between the Lines is a production of the Baylor Line Foundation, which was started in 1859 as a way for alumni to stay connected to Baylor University. To learn more, I hope you'll connect with us at BaylorLineFoundation.com. We'll see you next time. If I were Rod Rogers, I'd sure enough be single. I couldn't bring myself to marry an old dame. Would it just be me and Trevor? We'd go riding through them movies, and we'd buy a boat. See, we say.